Hi everyone, Andrea Pearson here. I just wanted to give you a heads up that the audio quality on my side is lower than normal again today. We record this episode around the same time as the previous one that had problems. My husband and I live in a young city that has only one internet provider. And when Disney Plus got introduced to our area, things kind of went crazy for about a week as the ISP updated and upgraded their servers. But as a result, this episode got messed up in compression after we finished recording. It's chock full of fantastic information though, and I'm excited for you to delve into it. Thank you for your patience and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I'm Joe Lala. And today we're interviewing Lauren Coleman, or Lauren L. Coleman. Isn't that your middle initial? <laughs> yeah, there's two of us, though. Yes, that's that was what threw us in the beginning. We're like, okay, I can't find anything on him anywhere. I was like, I know he does stuff because I've talked to him before. Anyway, yeah. Lauren is a science fiction author who has written for series like Battletech, McWarrior, Age of Conan, Magic the Gathering, and Star Trek. He's also written for Wizards of the Coast and other gaming companies. Um, on top of all that, Lauren is a Kickstarter guru, uh, having run several, several very successful Kickstarter campaigns. And as the owner of Catalyst Game Labs, he's someone in the know where the gaming community and authors are con- concerned because he does both. Um, we're really excited to have on, him on the show, and we wanted to welcome you, Lauren. Thank you. Yeah, so we're going to just dig right into our questions. Um, we're going to start out with just some general background uh, questions um, on you. And uh, let's see. So you write Battletech novels, right? I have, yes. How did you get affiliated with them and with Shadowrun? Um, I just, through a writing workshop I used to belong to, I met a few people that worked for, uh, at the time, FASA Corporation. They were the, uh, uh, the creators of Battletech and Shadowrun and the people publishing the, uh, the game and the novels. And I just kind of started working for them, writing uh, what is effectively creative nonfiction, is what, how I describe writing for the games. And I was already pitching to their editor to write novels. And after a few months, I just, uh, about, I'd been working about six months, and the editor said, uh, came to me and said, you're pretty good, and someone just dropped their novel, they couldn't get it done. Can you write a novel in, you know, seven weeks? And I said, yes. And I hung up and went, maybe. Um, so, uh, she, uh, she gave me this novel to write in seven weeks. And, uh, I talked to the, uh, Baltic line developer at the time and said, what do you want this to be about? And he just said, Oh, just go make this one faction cool. Cause they've been like the whipping boys forever. We're giving that to you. Go make them cool again. So I had you know, a, vague, a vague direction of go that direction. And I had seven weeks to do it, roughly. I did it in five, I believe. And uh, and uh, that was my first introduction to Baltech novels. And I've written, um, I think, 13, 12 or 13 of them now, um, between Baltech and, uh, and MechWarrior, which is all the same world. And uh, I love it. It's just, It's a great dynamic military sci-fi universe, which is my favorite genre. So it's been really awesome. Yeah. So it was kind of funny because we were at the business masterclass last year and this year. And my, you know, my husband is a huge battle type fan. So is his brother. And I had no idea. And I'm like, I'm like, Hey, um, you know, while we were there this, this last time I texted my husband, I was like, do you, does Catalyst Game Lab Labs mean anything? Or Games Lab mean anything to you? Or Battletech? And he's like, yes. <laughs> so that was yeah, it's, 
it, for those who for those who like military sci-fi, it's one of the it's probably the longest running epic storyline in military sci-fi. It's been going on, you know, seventy I think some novels now, you know, thirty thirty two years um, of a dynamic storyline. It's you know that that that's a, it's, a, it's a living universe. They don't reset after every story. It just changes. You change the universe. You keep going. So it's been a really popular, uh, really popular fiction line. I've been I've been very happy to be part of it. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay, so how did Catalyst Game Labs come about? That's uh, by accident. Um, <laughs> it's the short version. Um, so when FASA that I was working for for quite a while, um, they basically closed their doors. And I don't remember the actual date of this. Probably around, I'm going to guess it was around 2000 and let's say uh, right around 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. Uh, FASA closes doors. And the, they shifted the IP to the next company. Jordan Weiss's next company was owned by, at that point, um, uh, WizKids Games. And then WizKids was bought by Tops. Now at this point, I've I've been a freelancer. I'm writing novels. I'm writing game material. I'm there. I'm probably at that point one of their top two freelancers. And uh, I work I work for both companies, both FASA and WizKids. And then WizKids got bought by Tops. And there was some very uh, uh, Bowser was being kind of published at that point by a company called Sampro under a license from WizKids. I'm trying to get all this right. The uh, the begats and the begottens here. Um, Fanpro worked for WizKids publishing the classic Baltech game line, and uh, I was doing some work for them. And then that kind of all collapsed in there. There was some there was some issues and with German a German company owning FASA US licensing from them. It was a big mess. So when it all kind of fell apart, they brought me in to try to help untangle it. Because I'd been around for so long, I knew where everything was. I knew every, I knew all the players. So I, I was involved with WizKids trying to help entangle the entire mess. And uh, at one point, um, there's there were several people asking for the license to take over the license. And at one point, the president of WizKids, at that point, who was a tops appointee, turned to me in an office meeting and said, "All the people who are asking for the Baltic license." They're not going to get it. He said flat out, they, you know, no, it's not going to happen. We don't like them. We're not, it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. I said, okay, well, that's, you know, that's your choice. He said, yeah, but you seem to know what you're doing. He said, could you run this, these game lines? Um, could you run these game lines? I said, well, yeah. He said, uh, can you make a profit? I said, yes. He said, can you keep the stupid stuff off my desk? And I said, no, because there's too much built up stupidity that we have to fix. But when I bring you something, I will bring you two or three choices and you could then choose which, which direction you want me to go. And he said, that's fair. Congratulations. Here's Baltech and Shatterrun and go make a company. So I was literally, I didn't have a company yet. I was handed the license for Battletech and Shatterrun. I had to bootstrap a company into existence um, overnight, effectively, in order to make our first convention, which was about two months later, maybe three months later. Um, we went to Origins for our first convention. We had two products, and 
uh, a very simple booth, um, and that was the start of Catalyst Game Labs. Uh, it was just right place, right time, and I managed to impress the right guy with my knowledge of the universes and my uh, my publishing credits. So that was how Catalyst got born. That's really awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's you know it's made quite a big splash, especially in the gaming community. And um, you came in that first year, and we 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 were really good at smoke and mirrors. We call those our smoke. The first three years, we call those our smoke and mirrors years. We 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 came into Gen Con. We took over the old Wizkid space, so we were like right front and center with a big space, and we put up like all these banners and, and scaffolding that we could find in time. And we looked a lot bigger than we really were. And we kept up that facade for a solid couple of years until we grew into the position. So we made a big splash and then ran like hell to keep up. So I have to ask for all the authors listening, kind of, could you talk about how the books tie in with the gaming and are there still opportunities for authors who want to do, I assume it's kind of work for hire stuff? Yeah, yeah. In, in the FASI years, the novels kind of drove the storyline. Um, they, they, all the big plot points always appeared in the novels first. The game was the core of the world, but the, but the game backed up the novels. So they, they let the novels kind of take the lead on story. Then the game put out the wide base of product to support the universe. And that went away pretty much when, uh, when Fampro took over Battletech. Instead, Fampro just did the, base game, as I recall, and the novels shifted over to WizKids, and WizKids was doing their own version of the game, and they started doing the novels, now branded as MechWarrior Dark Age. Same universe, just slightly different name. And so I was working for FanPro for writing game work, and WizKids for writing fiction, and they were kind of separated for a while. And then after FanPro went away and WizKids was bought by Tops, and that was kind of going away, um, Catalyst put them back together in a fiction and game line under one brand again. So that's what, so it kind of split up for a while that we got them back, then we got the band back together and, and uh, started doing those again. And just recently we did a few novels. Uh, we did a lot of short, we did a lot of short fiction and anthologies um, for, for years. Uh, we did a couple of novels, but we just got, kind of got off to uh, not the best start on getting the novel line back up and running again. It was just recently, We've been able to commit and put out um, a series of novellas and now novels that uh, uh, will uh, let us get back on that track. So yes, we are actually writing novels and novellas and short stories right now for BattleTech and Shadowrun, and we're getting them out there. And uh, Shadowrun especially has been doing. We we actually got that back on track about oh, two years ago. They're doing very well. The new novels are doing very well, and they're also helping push. The old, we have all the old novels, the, uh, the catalog up online. So it's helping push the, the old books as well. And, uh, those are doing very well across the board. So there's lots of opportunity there. Um, we are, uh, we just uh, brought in two new writers to do a couple novels and for, for 2020, um, Steve Mohan and Kevin Kiliani, they've worked for us in the past and they're doing a novel for us. We brought back some of the, uh, what we guess we call it the old guard, uh, Mike Stackpole. Who's a uh, New York Times bestselling writer from Star Wars and other really big titles? Uh, Mike's coming back to do uh, a Baltic novel, and then I'll I'll be doing one as well. And then Mike and I are going to collaborate on a project that will either be really awesome 
or the death of both of us because we will kill each other. But uh, so yes, we're we're doing we're working with the old novelists, working with new novelists and short story writers, and uh, uh, I guess you'd say medium form novella novelette writers. So having a lot of fun. That's good that it's going strong again. I actually remember reading Shadowrun in the 90s and uh, tons of Forgotten Realms books. I guess that was with, now Wizards of the Coast. Yep. <laughs> TSR back in the day, I believe. Um, we did want to ask you some questions about Kickstarter since uh, you've done games on there, right? Uh, yes. I assume. And uh, had a lot of experience and made millions for, for the games, it looks like. Uh, could you talk about how you decided to do Kickstarter and what was involved? Uh, we've been following crowdsourcing since before there was Kickstarter, back when it was just GoFundMe, and then Kickstarter kind of came up fast and strong, as I recall that happening. Um, uh, we've been following it for a long time. Because at that point, we were a pretty successful company. Um, we didn't really flock to Kickstarter and, and really chase that too much. Um, there was a little bit of a, a feeling that Kickstarter was where you revamped old products or you, went, you, you were experimental. It really wasn't until the last uh, ooh four to six years where Kickstarter really had just just took over and became a platform just for any level across the board, um, fiction, games, everything. Fiction lagging to me, I believe, lags way behind. Gaming found a huge home on Kickstarter, um, and gaming I think is still I believe gaming is the top category still by far. Like nothing else comes close, I believe. Um, of like the top of like the you know million dollar Kickstarters and higher, gaming has you know a you know a very serious percentage of those. Um, I was lucky enough to run one of those myself this last year. Uh, we ran a two point six million dollar uh, game kick, game Kickstarter campaign. It was my fourth or fifth campaign at that point. The first couple were successful but smaller. The next to last was really good, and this one just blew through the through the ceiling and uh, did crazy. We're still dealing with the very awesome repercussions of having a, you know, a million dollar campaign out there. Um, so we've done that. I've also, but I've also followed, I follow multiple categories. I follow design. I follow the fashion category. I, I definitely follow the publishing category on Kickstarter. I think that maybe, maybe right now one of the weaker categories, but because it just hasn't really found its, uh, hasn't found as much footing yet as some of the the techie, you know, physical stuff that's out there. Uh, but I think it will. It's it's following along and getting stronger. So Right. It does seem to be the the really successful ones, of course, are the authors who already sell pretty well. You know, we we had Michael J. Sullivan on our old show and I think he's done a couple for close to a hundred thousand. Of course, as authors, we may only need like 5,000 to get a book edited and cover art. So that's kind of why we wanted to have you on to help out, uh, give some advice just on and Kickstarter in general for authors. Because, you know, there's a lot too that struggle that may only, may not get what they're asking for. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff I do on the gaming side definitely translates to the publishing side. In fact, I have a very good friend in the gaming community. His name is Matt Forbeck. Who has done Kickstarters over on the publishing side? He's also a great, he's also a really great writer, and he did this one Kickstarter plan. I believe it was four books in a year. He did one per quarter for one year, and each one I believe got progressively better. But he started with where I think most people have to start on Kickstarter, which was with realistic expectations. 
he didn't plan on bringing his first book to Kickstarter and, you know, doing a hundred thousand dollar campaign that he, I don't think he set a bunch of any limit on the first one. He used it as a way to push himself to write a book. He probably wouldn't have written anyway. And Matt, if you're out there, I'm getting this wrong. I apologize. You can, you know, thump me at Gen Con. Um, but as I recall, Matt was, he was pushing himself to write books. He may not have written anyway. And, but he built a fan base. He, he added to his fan base through Kickstarter. So every book got a little better and a little better. And by the, you know, by the end of his first year, I believe he had, I believe he had written four books, at least four books and, and was getting paid enough to, uh, you know, to make that a part of his career. So, uh, it's definitely possible and just, you start with realistic expectations, but you, and then you also, um, approach it with the fact that you are a professional. This is not just a garage. This is not, you know, a garage sale idea. This is not slumming. This is serious stuff. Uh, Kickstarter is a, I believe now close to a, if not a billion dollar platform. Um, this is big business. Um, there are people making more on Kickstarter than people are making on the New York Times bestseller list, I believe. Um, you just have to know how to approach it and how to build it um, into a successful career. That's really fantastic. I didn't know that about Kickstarter. Um, and you've kind of already um, kind of answered or bit around my next question, but just to make it a little bit more formal. So what are the most important things first-time campaign creators need to keep in mind when planning a campaign? And then, and I can ask my the next part of that question after that. But yeah, go ahead. Um, I, as I said, first of all, start with realistic expectations. And the other thing you should do, um, you should always, if you have been studying Kickstarter for a while, and I mean for for a few months, you should do that first. Um, the the biggest mistake I see people that look at it, look at it for a couple of days, and they start pounding away like, "I'll throw my first campaign up there." Um, you need to basically know your market. And this is a market, it's a platform and a market both. You need to know it in order to capitalize on and be successful there. So, uh, set, set a recent goal, you know, learn the system, you know, follow a couple campaigns, publishing, gaming, whatever interests you. Follow some, you, you have places to learn in every category. You will learn something new in every category. I have. Um, and then be prepared. And this is, this is where we could talk about this. This will be like also like down the road, but this, this will be able to come up early and be a problem for people all throughout their campaign. Be prepared to let people into your office effectively. You are opening your door to a very large group of people. They, it's like you're almost like in a, in a convention. You're, you're running panels effectively. These people want to help you. They want to be supportive. But they also want some of your time. They want to interact with you. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely a social dynamic involved in this. So if you're not prepared to do the social dynamic, you can either hurt or cripple your campaign and, and or, or cripple the platform for yourself for, uh, for a length of time. So you have to be ready for that. So, but if you, if you, but if you follow along with some campaigns to begin with, you won't be caught by surprise by the social dynamic or other issues. Now, these are people who currently already are on Kickstarter, but I mean, does that apply to the people that you bring to Kickstarter? The, you know, treating them like the open office and all that, interacting and everything? Well, I mean, if you're bringing your own fan base to Kickstarter to help uh, support your campaign, that's great. Um, 
and you should you probably at that point you are used to working with your fan base through email groups or newsletters or conventions or whatever you as you do. Um, that that can only help you. Uh, but on Kickstarter, there's a you know every category Kickstarter has its uh, just its fan base, just like just like the people who walk into Barnes and Noble or the people that check the you know the New York Times bestseller list or the people, or the people that check the Amazon list. You have your 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 audience. You're trying to attract to your work. I don't care if it's game or book or whatever. You're trying to attract an audience. This audience has built-in um, some built-in uh, 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 beliefs and and um, I'm trying to be nice about it, but they have they are they are going to be assisted in a few areas. They 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 they, they have an expectation of access. Uh, and I think they have a, a fair expectation. You're asking them to give you money before you probably even have a product to show them. So they, well, they expect some access. They expect you to let them know what's going on. They expect to be part of the process. That's why it's called crowdfunding it's, it's a, or crowdsourcing. You know, you are, you are inviting a group of people to join you on a, on a path for, of creation. But if you, if you don't like voices in your head, or talking about your products before they're done, you can do some damage to yourself too. So you got to know upfront what you're willing to do. And sometimes that's why people get Kickstarter managers. Like, you know, some, some people I know, writers, I know that they don't want to touch, get anywhere near the platform. They let their manager run the campaign for them and interface through them with the, with the backers. So it all depends on what you're comfortable with um, and, uh, you know, know your own limitations. A really good point. And then, um, so for the more seasoned camping creators, I mean, what sorts of things do they keep an eye out for? And basically, is it possible for them to tell at a glance whether a campaign will be successful or not, um, even before it starts? Um, I think usually there usually is. If you know what you're doing, you can you can usually set an expectation and get there. Um, we've had we've had one Kickstarter. We had a re, we had a we had a, we actually stopped, canceled, and restarted again. Because we had a we we set an unreal we set an unrealistic expectation that was going to hurt the campaign. By the way, the campaign was going to fund, so the campaign we started like, well, we figured, yeah, it's going to fund, but it wasn't going to do what we wanted it to do. It wasn't going to engage the fan base properly. It wasn't going to do as well as it could have. So we stopped it, canceled it, restarted it with a better expectation and better support for the fans we were attracting. And by doing that, we had, we, I think we basically, uh, the fans who were already part of the first campaign idea more enjoyed the second campaign for that product because we engaged them at a, at a better level. So again, you, you set real estate invitations and you build a campaign. If you treat it professionally and you know your numbers, like anything else, you should always know your numbers in any, in any business. Um, you can look at it and say, okay, here's what I'm asking them for. Here's what's going to cost me in time and money. Here's what it potentially can make me at every level along the way. And, you know, at every level, like from, from five backers to 500 backers to 5,000 backers, you should know what that could cost you. Um, I've seen campaigns uh, get blown up. Like, you know, there'll be 100,000, 200,000 million dollar campaigns. And it ruins the company. It ruins the product because they didn't set themselves up for success. Um, sometimes extreme success can be as damaging as not funding your campaign. 
So again, just really knowing that system and knowing what it can do to you and being ready for any level of success. Uh, you can you can plan for uh, as a very a successful campaign right up front. We knew Valtech would be successful. We built it. We had no doubt we were going to be a strong campaign. We were hoping it would go huge, which it did. And because we were hoping it would go huge, we were mostly ready for it to do so. Where it caught us sleeping was how fast it went huge. So we had all these plans like, well, here's our, here's our $500,000 plan. Here's our million dollar plan. Here's our two million dollar. We had these plans all set up. But when it went to like, you know, a million dollars on like, you know, like the first 48 hours, whatever, whatever it got to, we, we knew what we wanted to do. We just couldn't type it in fast enough to get it up online fast enough. The, the backers were ahead of the campaign the whole, like the first 36 hours. We were playing catch up because we thought we had enough assets ready and then we did. But fortunately, because we knew where we were going, uh, it, we didn't get flustered. We didn't get, you know, out of control. We just said, okay, take our time, do it right. We'll eventually catch up to where they are. And our backers were awesome. They, they let us catch up and no one gave us a hard time about it. We were good. But we were, that's because we really had a, we had a plan. We, we were, we were not as prepared as we could have been, but we had a plan. And that's really what you need. Other things to watch out for. Um, I can tell you, I, I can tell you some of the, some of the pitfalls I've seen. If you're not a, if you're not a, a company, a corporation, you're running this as a schedule C, as a, as a private individual, sole proprietorship. Uh, you're probably a cash accrual system, um, for taxes for, in this country anyway. Um, the biggest, the, one of the biggest problems you can make is running a really big Kickstarter at the end of the year because that money is instantly taxable. And I've watched people get in trouble by, by not saving aside their, their taxes. You know, like I have the money in December, all the products next August, but guess what happens in April? You still have to pay taxes on the, on the book you sold. This I've been out for six months. So I've seen that happen to people. That's in both games and publishing. You got to be ready for that if you're on a cash accrual basis. Um, other things you can do is just let it go to your head. You know, Oh my God, I made a million dollars. Cool. I can go to, I can go to Hawaii. I can buy a new car. I can do everything except the things I was supposed to do with this money, which was create the product I promised or the, for like Baltech, the series of products. We have, I believe, 72 physical items we have to create. Um, not even counting the sub variations of physical items we have to create for our Kickstarter. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. We've got, we have a year of production ahead of us to fulfill our Kickstarter. Um, but I've seen companies, experienced companies get stupid and then end up in trouble and not able to, to finish what they promised. Uh, so be ready to finish, be ready to finish what you do your campaign, set goals. Engage your fan base and then deliver. Uh, deliver and communicate. That's where people, and we made that mistake. We, we had a campaign we didn't communicate well and it hurt us. Um, it was a successful campaign, you know, $400,000 campaign, but because our communication, uh, wasn't, our communication wasn't ready for that. We, we backslid a little bit. So. You know, so be ready for that too. We weren't ready for that the, the ongoing communication effort it was going to take for a, for a, for a very successful campaign. Now for BattleTech, it's six times the size of our previous successful campaign, and we're keeping up with it because we knew what to expect and we, you know, prepared for it. So, 
Yeah, I can see where that much success could be really challenging. I, I did one in 2012, just a little, you know, financing my audiobooks. And I remember I totally underestimated how much international shipping would be. So I, yeah. I did fine, but, you know, and there was a lot of work to sign the paperbacks and all that. And that was just for a little, I think I made about 5,000, asked for 2,500, but I can't even imagine how much fulfillment there is on a $2 million uh, campaign. Yeah, you, yeah, if you screw up your shipping costs, that's a, that's a good way to go, you know, into the hole real fast. And all I can say is you got to suck it up and, and deal with it. Uh, you, you, you've made a promise. You've got to engage. I've seen some people come back and say, Hey guys, we screwed up. We, 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 you know, our shipping costs are incorrect. You got to basically help us out. And most of the backers do. The Kickstarter backers are a wonderful community of people. Um, they have some, they have some expectations. Uh, but generally they know they're part of an ongoing process. So yeah, screwing up your shipping. That's a good way to do it. Not saving aside your tax money, that's a good way to do it. Um, you know, again, just don't be stupid. You know, I, I hate to say it, how many, how many problems I've seen campaigns crash and burn that could have been saved with just those simple words. Don't be stupid. You know, fulfill your obligations and don't be stupid. And what's nice is success breeds success on Kickstarter. If you have a good campaign, that's why I keep saying, don't be afraid to start small. You know, set a, set a goal. I just want to make a thousand dollars or I want to get 50 backers. You know, you should, you should know what's reasonable at your level. And you say, you'll set a goal that you think you can reach. The nice thing is, so I only got 50 backers this time, but I'll turn that into 75 to a hundred next time, then 200, then 500. If you keep meeting your obligations, the backers will come back to you if you're putting out a good product and you just build and they, it's word of mouth. They build on it like anything else. Um, that's why mostly when you see successful campaigns, you just see them doing better and better and better. You had uh, mentioned managers, which I hadn't heard of before. Is that is there a certain level where that it doesn't become feasible unless you're, you know, going to make six figures or more on your campaign, or is that somebody you know an author could look into getting? Um, Yes and no. I mean, so I, I believe I'm, I'm safe in saying there's probably no level of Kickstarter where having a manager is unfeasible. It all depends on how much the manager is willing to work for, how much work they want to do for the size of the Kickstarter. Generally, the bigger the campaign, the more work there is. So the manager's earning his money. Um, the ones I've talked to in the past, they've all worked for like a percentage or a small flat fee and a percentage. And often the percentage is scalable. So, hey, we're planning a $10,000 Kickstarter. And the manager's like, okay, I'll do it for 500 bucks plus 4%. But then if we break 50,000, I'll take it down to 3%. We break 100,000, you know, they'll scale it down. They're not trying to, you know, they're not trying to ride your back to, if you have a big property to, uh, to make more than you are on this. They, they tend to, they want to be successful as well. But most of, most of the ones I've seen have, have offered a sliding scale that's reasonable and that you get what you pay for. Um, and so is it, is it necessary? No. We ran four of our five campaigns we have run in-house ourselves from, with our staff. One campaign, we hired a manager to do it for us because he was better at it than we were. We wanted to learn from him. And we did. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's all good stuff. Just, you just got to basically know what your expectations are. Know your own limitations. 
and then get and then find a way to work around them. Excellent. Uh, my experience with Kickstarter is fairly limited on the the funding level. Like I have been part of a successful Kickstarter, but I wasn't running it. I was just one of many people in an anthology. But I've funded quite a few, and it, it's still like even by funding one, you get a pretty good idea of what the shape of the funding chart looks like. And in general, it seems like there's an initial surge and then a last minute surge. And in the middle, there's this sort of valley of death. Uh, is that just <laughs> yes, the way things go? That's a good way to describe it. That, 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 that valley of death seems like you, you should want to cut it out. But the thing is, you still do pretty well in that, in that flatline area. You need to, I, I'm, I'm hoping I get the numbers right here. I believe they say if you don't fund at least 40% of your goal in the first I think it's 48 hours, you're in trouble. You probably, you know, you, you can expect to surge at the end, but you probably will, you're, you're more, you're, you're much less likely to fund if you're not over at least 40%. If you, uh, if you are 60% of your goal in the first 40, in the first 48 hours, you're in great shape. You're gonna, you're probably gonna overfund. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure, pretty, I think those numbers are pretty close. Um, then there's that, that long valley. Where you're just working it. That's where you put a lot of work to, to set up the final like two days. Um, and that's, it does matter. Um, that, that I've seen people try to do abbreviated Kickstarters, like they do like a seven day. They want that three day ramp and then a three day ramp with like, you know, nothing in between. Uh, it's worked. I've seen it work. I've also seen it fail spectacularly. Um, that middle ground can be useful, uh, for, for building expectations, for setting up the end game, also for potentially thinking about other things you can do to upsell um, on the on the campaign, because you can always add extras and benefits and stuff like that that, that the fans may be willing to to chip in on. Uh, there's some good stuff in there, so uh, I'm not sure if, if micro campaigns, fast campaigns, are a good idea or not. But yes, you should be aware that your first two or three days. And your last two days are where the critical numbers are. And you should really be ready for those. Okay. That certainly seemed to have been the case. And it's funny how much uh, effort, like you see, like, again, I've, I've funded so many of them, and how much effort you see going on in that middle section when, yep. when they're just trickling in. And it's like, it's good to know that, like, this is expected behavior. And you don't need to worry too much if you see it leveling out. But uh, uh, so, like in general, you say setting up for 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 the end. Um, so you don't have to be like pulling your hair out during that middle part. Just sort of keep people up, like make sure people don't people know that they didn't die out or anything like that. That's where the communication skills come in. That's where everyone takes a breath, and you're, it's almost like a, you know the first date is over. Now you're doing like the real get to know you things. You know, you're you're really you know talking to them, letting them know what to expect. If you keep your people engaged, the nice thing is if you, if you keep them engaged when you reach those last couple of days, they will do the heart, the heavy lifting for you. They realize, hey, we're getting close to the end. You know what? I'm going to up my pledge. I'm going to go from like you know, the, the $20 pledge to the $40 pledge because I like these people. I like this guy. Or I like what he's doing. Or, oh, my God, he added like a, a leather-bound cover on his book. I want that. You know, so so if you keep them engaged... They will want to help you be successful. They'll also call their field, you know, get online and email their friends. Say, "Hey, have you have you looked at this Kickstarter I'm backing? You should maybe come back it with me." But that, a lot of that is how engaged and enthusiastic your backer list is. Because chances are, 
as the author or game producer, you pretty much, you know, you pretty much, you know, blew your entire budget in the first, you know, 24 to 48 hours. If you were going to get a, one of your fans out there to, to back you, they probably backed you immediately. Now you're really working on a whole new level of, of, of driving that down and trying to really reach out there for new people. And every new person you get is a just nothing but gravy at that point. It's a huge bonus. Um, then you get the last like 40, 30, 40 hours and it just goes crazy again, hopefully. Now on the topic of smaller Kickstarters, um, so you were saying like a thousand dollars. I remember, I remember in the business masterclass, you were recommending even as low as two or three hundred dollars. Sure. Um, it does that, is that okay? Does that still work? It, it, there's no level you can't do. I mean, there's, there's really, it all comes down to what is it you need? Do you need the money? Catalyst didn't need the money. Catalyst is a very successful company. We're, we're doing very well. We didn't do it because we needed the money to fund the product. We were going to make it no matter what. We wanted the grassroots marketing approach. We wanted to reach out there and find out how many fans are out there. And we, and we, and, and, and how many of them are out there that we're not reaching through hobby trade? Because we had a feeling, because Baltic is a 35 year old property. We had a feeling there were thousands of people that would come back to us if we could reach out and find them. And we weren't finding them through the traditional hobby sales, through traditional distribution. So that was a big part of what we want to do. We were trying, we were trying to find those people. And we found thousands of them. 12,000 backers. Our typical book for Cattle's Game Labs, Game Book, um, about 2,500, 3,000 copies. You know, our typical, you know, that, that's our typical like support book. Our base game will sell better, but we reached 12,000 people, four times the number we would normally reach with a product with a, with a new, so huge win. Uh, we, that's, so we, but our, that's what we were going for. We were trying to find those people. Now, if you're looking at it from the point of view of like a new author, because that's, that's the focus of this podcast as a new author, what should I expect? Well, what is it? You know, are you going to write the book anyway? Or the story, or the collection, whatever it is. Yes. Okay. Then I don't necessarily need the money. What you're trying to build is you're trying to build fan base. You're trying to build an audience. Um, so you know you can set an expectation. Hey, I want to do. I'm going to do an anthology collection, and I know that it, I can print it. You know, POD it or ebook it for this much money. You know, my cost or whatever. And I'm going to offer something special. For the 50 people or 200 people I hope to get in this campaign, if you, if you get it here, if you back me here before I've written it or something, I'm going to add a, you know, a special cover to the POD, or I'm going to basically, I'm going to throw in three extra stories for the adult, for the ebook only for you backers. So when it goes on Amazon, it'll be 80,000 words, but you're only going to get 95. You know, you, you, you set that, that expectation of what you're going to give them extra. And if you get 50 people to give you four bucks a piece, is that a win? Uh, it, I would think it is because those people, if they like your writing, they're going to buy yourself on Amazon. They're going to come back and support your next Kickstarter campaign. You just put 50 people on a, on a premier, uh, fan list effectively. You know, you're, you're trying to turn them into super fans. Is what we're trying, to, we're trying to do. So I have no problem with a two hundred dollar goal on a, on Kickstarter, especially if you're a new writer just trying to develop an audience and develop a market for yourself as an indie publisher. You know why not? 
And if you do better than expected, do 500 or 1,000, you know, you're just that much further ahead. But what you don't want to do is say, I want $5,000 for my collection. And, you know, in the first two out, in the first two days, you do 350 bucks. And you just, you know, it just falls on its face because you set an unrealistic goal. You weren't ready on how to engage people at that level. And so it's like, you just have to work it up. Now, if you can't write the book, if you're like, hey, in order to write this book, I've got to have a thousand dollars in my pocket for whatever reason, for the research, for the, for the time off of my regular paying job, for whatever reason, if you have a number you have to reach, sure, set it at that number, but let people know why. You tell them, hey guys, this is why it's this way. This is going to be really great, but here's my here's my need. If they don't match it, if they don't go for it, no harm, no foul. But you know, you really want to be very clear up front and just again know what you want to accomplish with this. So yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I use anyone who wants to you should go look up Matt Forbeck and look at his. You could obviously look at everyone's campaigns they've ever done. You can click on and say, oh, he's like you know. He's back 16 products and he's, he's run seven campaigns. Go study them. See what they, see how he did it. See what they did. So go study Catalyst Game Labs. Go study Matt Forbeck. Go study, you know, some of these big ones, you know, and, and also study unsuccessful campaigns. Learn a lot by what goes wrong uh, on a campaign that doesn't do well. Um, and then just, uh, you know, do that kind of stuff. Um, again, back to know your platform. This is both a platform and a and a market, so you've got to basically treat it as you know as both. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's fun. What I love about it is fun. Uh, to me, the campaign is the, the campaign is just like almost like a, a little game in itself. You know, can I win? Yeah. So, well, yeah. We start treating it like that, and then you've got a, a high score right there to keep track of. I said a pretty good high score. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, on the subject, sort of starting with a small Kickstarter, I've seen some folks, a fairly large number of folks, actually, usually with larger followings, have success by having a pretty modest goal for their actual funding goal, but then having a full slate of stretch goals going off to infinity, basically. Uh, what are your opinions of that method or just of stretch goals in general? Um, every person I respect who has run big campaigns almost always, I would say 90% plus, give the same advice. Be prepared to give a lot away in your first couple of days. Meaning set yourself up to where you want to give away free work. You want to give them more than they're asking than you originally were asking for. Set yourself up for that kind of success. I'm a firm believer in that. Um, set a modest goal. You know, absolutely. That's why I said that one, that one time we failed our campaign, we set the wrong goal to the level of product we were trying to produce. Which is why we stopped it, revamped it, set a lower goal. So we want we wanted to get people into these stretch goals. Stretch goals are fun. Stretch goals is where all the excitement is. If you can blow away your goal in the first couple of hours, your first couple of days, and get the people climb to that next cool thing they can add to their campaign, that's where the that's where the viral excitement can come from. I, I have never seen it. I've I've seen well, I should say never. I'm sure I have. I can't remember the last huge campaign I saw that didn't do it through the excitement of clawing up through those stretch goals. They didn't blow through their funding, you know, within the first day or two. That's what makes it work. In my opinion, that's, that's one of the easier ways to make it work. I mean, there's probably another hundred ways to do it that I'm doing it. I'm just saying what the generalities I have seen. Uh, so yes, set a modest goal, then develop some fun stretch goals 
to get them to get excited about passing the news along and also have just have fun along the way. Sometimes we set social media goals that mean have, has nothing to do with us making extra money. We'll say, hey, for you know, if, if you know if twenty of you go on Facebook today and like us just because you know for you know, just for fun, if you're paying attention and you know twenty of you go do this, we're going to give you something for free. Another short story, or it's, in Baltex we gave away several short stories just for fun little social. We call them social media missions. Did it translate into money for us? No, not really. Did it translate into awareness of our product? Yes, which means long-term, probably results in more sales. But there's no way to quantify what that did for us. We did it just to engage our fans and have some fun. And they had some fun doing it. So, so yeah, I, I think setting a modest goal and, 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 and then planning for stretch goals is a very much a, a good roadmap to success. Excellent advice. And I just have a couple more Kickstarter questions for you. Hopefully you're not tired of this subject, but I'm, uh, you're, getting I, I excited to, <laughs> you're getting me excited to try a new one. Um, for people who are hoping to maybe get, if not viral, then at least some reach beyond their fan base that they bring in. Do you have any tips for, you know, I know they will select, uh, campaigns to feature or just any tips for getting more organic reach? Um, you know, everyone's, it, it all depends on where your strengths currently are. If you've got a, a winning, a winning email list, be ready to use that. If you, if you're a podcaster, you know, leverage, leverage the strength you already have. Don't think you're going to go out there and, and follow my formula exactly or someone else's formula exactly. They had different assets and different weaknesses they were dealing with. So hard to say what makes that helps you set up those keys to success. Um, Obviously, it's a numbers game. You want to reach out and, and you know engage the, the most numbers possible. Are you going to a convention? Why not set it up so you're running it at your convention? You're, you know, so you're, you're, you're up there doing panels. You can bring up your kicks. I mean, so look and see where you've got some natural synergy with reaching out to your fan base or potential fan base. That'd be that'd be one thing. One thing I think you should you could look at, um, and then just. Uh, yeah, it's, just, it's hard to say. I mean, each campaign is somewhat organic in nature as to, as to what, you know, what you're trying to accomplish and the assets you already have to build on. Um, I'm not sure that really answers your question, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, so did I even get close to it? I think I did. No, that's great. Uh, and I'm kind of curious for offers. swiped it along the way, I think. That's all right. For authors who are actually established and figure they can probably do a Kickstarter and get funded with no problem, um, is there any backlash you need to worry about? Because I feel like, in, at least in the author community, like when Seth Godin did his, people were like, well, he doesn't need the money. Why did he you know, do this $200,000 Kickstarter campaign? Well, it's not necessarily about... It's, it's, maybe he did need the money. He did, maybe he did not need the money. Like Catalyst didn't need the money. Um, in the end, we are all trying to make a living at this and trying to be, you know, being professional and trying to make our, our, our best living possible. Um, sometimes it's about the marketing. Sometimes it's about just trying something new, something creative. Um, in the end, we still need to get a fair price for our product. We are all creators. We're, we're content creators. Um, I've seen the backlash here and there. It used to be a lot worse, I would say, four or five years ago. Um, and, and I think in publishing, you still see a bit of this, I don't want to call it a ghetto attitude, but that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. Because gaming used to have that too. 
uh, five, six years ago. But after so many successful Kickstarters, after so many millions of dollars um, funneled into new games that would not exist without this platform, uh, a lot of that's gone away. There's still a little bit of that here and there, but a lot of that in the gaming side is just, it's almost non-existent anymore. Um, so as for, for publishing, uh, if, if you hear some of that, you know, that, uh, the naysayers say, well, why'd you do it this way? And why you don't need this? Like ignore it. These, this is the same kind of person who would say, who would ask me, why do you write for those, you know, game companies? Why don't you write real fiction? You know, I'm writing real fiction. I'm writing something I love. I'm making a living at it. Why can't I be happy doing this? But they would rather put down the work I was doing because it wasn't what they wanted to do or how they thought I should do it. So same kind of the same thing here. If you if you're happy doing it, if it helps you if it helps you put out more content or find more fans, you know, I think it's an awesome plan. Um so I'll go back to your first, your last question just for briefly, because one thing I did try with the new with my big campaign, I think was a good idea. How does a new writer engage new fans in a, in a small Kickstarter quickly? Um, I had one one little tip you could try um, that works very well for us on this. No matter what they backed us at, I don't care if they backed they backed us at the five hundred dollar pledge level or they just gave me a dollar. If they backed my campaign, the minute that every day we sent out fiction, we sent out a we had a short story ready to go. If they were a backer, they got a short story. If they if they were a backer, then quit. I didn't care. They still got a short story. I gave a short story to everyone who backed me, no matter what level they backed me at. And to me, it was an easy you know it was an easy little thing to give them. Didn't cost me anything except for some time. I gave them an original story, and the fans loved it. Um, the fact that I just gave them stuff just for participating. In fact, I think by the end of this, the end of the campaign through stretch goals at all. We had given out something like, I think, close to two hundred thousand um, words of uh, basically free fiction. They didn't, you know, they they got it by by hitting certain goal levels. They ended up, they ended up paying for it. We just gave it to them. Some of it was stuff we had, you know, we had in the in the in the uh, already in the can. It was already in the catalog. Some of it, some of it was new, but we we were doing so well. We wanted to reward our fan base. So if I was right now as a new writer or, or even a, honestly, as a new writer, mid-level writer or a successful writer, uh, my, I, my next campaign, if I, if, when I run one for fiction, which we will be here pretty soon, um, I'm giving away a lot of fiction during that campaign for free. It's some new stuff, some existing stuff just to keep them engaged and enjoying my work or enjoying the work of, you know, Catalyst Publishing. Because again, you're back to this is what gets them excited. And they will respond to it. So, yeah. So, what about? I mean, I like that idea, but would you consider like using a a full length novel and breaking it up into sections so that if they start at the beginning, they could get it bit mm -hmm. by bit throughout the project, the whole campaign? That's a tricky one. I, I like it, but the reason why I'm hesitating is so I'm thinking if I start them on one of my novels, if it was me as a writer. I would not want to, well, sorry guys, we didn't make the hundred thousand or the ten thousand or the five thousand. I'm not gonna, you know, you don't get the whole thing now. So you, you want them to have a feeling of they got something and they finished something. So I would, 
I would be very hesitant to break up a novel that way. Um, I'd rather say, look, guys, you, you know, we're, we're doing my new novel. At a thousand dollars, we're funded. I'm going to write this novel for you. You get it first, and I'll then I'll put it out online. If we get to ten thousand, I'm going to give all of you a free novel. So saying, you know, we give them, give them like half a novel at five thousand, maybe not giving them the whole thing. I don't think that gets people as excited as giving them something they can just here it is. So if you're going to do that, I'm back to give them a couple of short stories early on, then have a novella at five thousand dollars, giving you all a free novella. Something I wrote, you know, something I wrote a few years ago. Maybe you haven't read it. You're just going to get it anyway. At ten thousand, I'm going to get a novel you probably haven't read. Maybe it's one I haven't published. You're going to get an unpublished, uncorrected, unedited. You know, something you'll see from from the trunk. You'll see you know, something I haven't finished yet. Something special just for you. I mean, just there's no way there's no way you can't spin this stuff to have fun. It comes down to what you find interesting, how much of yourself you want to put out there. But to me, I would say give them something concrete, something with an ending. So even if your campaign doesn't get everywhere you wanted to get to, don't. Once you start giving them something, never pull it back. Never, never have a clawback. Never have a way that basically trips them. That will anger people. And you don't want you want these people to love you because you want them to come back to your future Kickstarters. If they know, man, you know they offered me a free novel. He delivered. You know, his next campaign, I'm there. And that's that's the kind of attitude you want. So I, that's why I, I said I, I like the idea. At the same time, I'm I'm leery about that idea. That's why I've, I was saying. Okay, so I was okay. So when you're doing a not the stories, they're actually associated with stretch goals. And because I was just thinking like a little bit every day, rather than according to if we met a stretch goal or not. Well, if um, if if you're doing a 30 day campaign and you had a 30 chapter novel. And you said, hey, guys, over the course of this campaign, as long as we're on track, I'm going to give you a free chapter every day to read. Sure. As long as you're committing to giving it by the end of the campaign, they're going to have the whole thing. So I mean, just, just I'm saying is, you know, that would be a, that could be very interesting to do. Yes, that, that I'd be want to do. But only because I'm saying I'm committing ahead of time. You're all going to get this. Whether we fund a little, we fund a lot, or maybe not even fund at all, you're all still going to get this novel as my gift to you for backing me and being here for me. And then if I don't, hey, usually don't fund. Here's what's fun. You could do that. Let's say you had like a $1,000 stretch goal and you use one of your existing novels, and but you don't fund. What did you just do? You probably just made 100 people extremely excited about the next time you try a campaign. They're going to come back. And next time, maybe you, maybe you will fund next time at whatever level you were trying to fund at. But my point is, once you offer them something, Make sure they get it because that's what, that's what they expect. And that's what helps breed that success I was talking about before. Hey, we're going to move away from Kickstarter. Are you okay with that? I'm fine with that. Okay. I can do this all day. I was like, I find it, I find it a fascinating platform. I really do. In fact, we are, so we haven't done fiction yet. Cattle has not done fiction, but we actually have a fiction. Uh, we did fiction as part of our game campaign. We are actually planning some fiction uh, campaigns, both for Catalyst and the spinoff that we did from Catalyst called Pulse Publishing. We're doing, we're going to do a uh, uh, a magazine, fancy magazine coming up soon. I can't say the name of it yet, but I will soon. Um, we have some ideas for some fancy magazines for some other fiction projects. We will do to start playing around in the publishing side of Kickstarter 
Uh, because I think that's, I think there's a lot of potential there. It just hasn't got that critical mass yet that other, other uh, categories have reached. So we're going to play around with that a little bit, see if we can't help. Yeah, that sounds fun. Um, okay, so you work with a ton of artists. Um, what are some of the problems authors encounter when working with artists, and how do you get around those? <laughs> My husband's a professional illustrator. so, so you, you already know part of the answer to this question. The problem is we, we think differently. You know, we, we work with words and imagine, and, and our imagine, you know, we, we, you know, we all are trying to create a, a, a world, a vision or something, but we do it with such different media that, uh, it's hard to just sometimes just talk. The, we don't have common language necessarily. Um, my art director at Catalyst, we have a fun relationship because he, he, I know what I like. I know what I don't like. And when he shows, he shows me, Hey, Lord, here's a new cover. He wants my opinion. The problem is I don't have the language I need to discuss it with him. So he, I was like, well, it's kind of scratchy. And down here, it's kind of, it's too muddy beige. And can you stretch out the activity vertically? And he's, I'm like, do you understand what I mean? He's like, I, I think so. I have no language with him at all. Um, then he has to take that back and translate it to the actual artist who's doing the work. Um, the biggest problem I've ever had with artists is uh, I love working with them because they're such creative people and I love visual art. I collect it, big fan of it. But the hardest problem is working with them is just developing a common language you can use to get what you want. Because sometimes it's just so frustrating to look and go, I know this isn't right. I don't know how to tell them how to get there. Um so that's that's those with covers for my fiction I've done before. I've done fiction covers for my own my own personal novels and novellas on on Amazon. It, it goes with the gaming stuff. We just t discussing things with them is hard, um, but it's so worth it when you get it right. It's so worth it. I mean, no, nothing's better than having a great artist do you know bring your world to life visually. It's just amazing. I absolutely agree with that. I've, uh, this this cabinet behind me is referred to as a cabinet of awesomeness, and it's full of assorted artwork that I've gotten from uh, from or because of books. Yeah, but, well, I mean, uh, you see right behind me, I've got I've got a I've got a Doug Chafee original behind me here on the wall. Doug Chafee is an amazing artist who has he has a mural on the wall at the White House, but he wrote he he painted for BattleTech because he loved our world, and I was lucky I was just fortunate enough to get an original from him. He still worked in oils. I was lucky enough to get an original from him um, during during his life, and just you know, I, I'm surrounded my office. I'm surrounded by art actually all over my office. It's just one I keep by my desk because I like it so much. That's but awesome. uh, yeah, you can't you can't go wrong with uh, when, when artists bring your world to life. All right, so um, you've got a military background, and a lot of your uh, your writing and the stuff that you've worked on uh, is military flavored at the very least, military fiction of some variety. Um, when you're writing military genre fiction, uh, how, what needs to be accurate versus what can be fictionalized? Because it seems like there's some very specific expectations from that audience. That's a really that's an awesome question because having because also as a military sci-fi and military fan, actually I, I love military fantasy, military sci-fi. Um, I, I like military fiction in general, um, and and it's a good question because I have noticed when I've read it. I can sometimes tell who's faking it and who's not faking it. But even if they're faking it, I can still enjoy the story. So what's what is important about that to get right? 
almost what's more important is getting the right attitude or the right feel as opposed to the exact right acronym or, you know, the proper, you know, military procedures. Like if you feel like you at least went, you know, went in the right direction as a reader, I'm a lot more forgiving. It's when you suddenly go, no, that wouldn't happen. No, not, you know, someone would have stopped the stupidity back on page one. No. Um, that's where I get frustrated. And, and hopefully in my own writing, I've managed to do that. I may not always get the, the exact uh, details right, though I try very hard. Um, but it's more about making sure you understand the underlying, if not the underlying theory, the underlying premise behind why things work the way they do in a military environment. Um, and I think it's true for really almost any kind of a category you want to name. I mean, can, you know, if I'm not a doctor, can I have a doctor as a main character? Yeah, sure. But hopefully I at least get the, the attitude and the responsibilities and the, you know, some of that part right. Even if I don't know where he cuts to, you know, do a, do a transplant, you know, I can hopefully look up that and fake that a little bit. So the military stuff, jargon helps, but you can over jargon things a lot. Um, to me, the, like my military experience, I was a, I was an E5 tech on a carrier. I never fired a gun. I never, I never hit the fan. Um, but what I understood about the military was the general bureaucracy of, you know, the enlisted ranks and the officer ranks. I understood the relationships, the both the positive and the, the, the antagonistic relationships you get in a military environment. Um, I saw a lot. So I, I knew a lot of stuff that would make a world come alive in a very truthful and realistic way. Even if I'm talking about, you know, Marines fighting, you know, you know, alien beings out in the middle of the desert, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, I do a lot of military fantasy stuff in my short fiction. Um, so, so it may be completely off the wall weirdness, but I think I get the relationships right more than not. And, and people who have been in the military or have known military people, I think recognize that. Uh, I get asked all the time, you know, well, I know you served. Was, you know, where'd you serve at? Marines? I wrote Friends of Skies. I said, they people like me, what do you fly? You know, were you in the air, you're in the military, were you in the air force or what, you know, what do you fly in the weekends? They thought for sure I was a pilot. Um, cause I got enough of the jar, enough of the jarring, but also details, but also just the attitude of, of independent flyers. You know, that, that I got those pieces right. They thought I must be part of the club. These guys were pilots. They, oh yeah, what do you fly? I buy you, know, I fly a whatever. I don't know the, I don't remember the things. I, I fly a Baron, whatever. Like, you know, what do you fly on the weekends? I'm like, you know, kites with my kids. <laughs> like, so. You know, what's important to me, the, 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 what, ma what matters is the characters, the people. So the relationships, the attitudes, sometimes just the, the, the stupid bureaucracy that we deal with on a day to day basis. Um, you know, those are the things I think I brought into a military fiction that made it more believable. All right. And it definitely helps to have, even if you don't have the experience, a beta reader or somebody you can kind of lean on who actually does, I think, to get that authenticity. Yeah, so, it never hurts. I mean, yeah, doing it, just even doing a good interview when I was writing for Criminal Skies, I just went and interviewed a couple of pilots. It took me a couple hours. I had them walk me through their, you know, walk me through the stuff, but it was, it was spending time with them, I think, more than anything and getting the rhythm of, of, of how they talked about their, their, and the, and the passion. Try they talked about what they loved, you know, talk about their craft and flying, and, and that passion I think is what really came through 
that maybe will think that I knew more than I actually did. So, yeah, beta readers are huge, but also just go interview a few people, talk to them. You know, it's amazing what you learn just sitting in a room with someone for an hour. Awesome. And we've kept you for about an hour. So I think we're going to have our last couple of questions here. <laughs> Mine is for authors who have some su success uh, with their books and are curious about maybe they're licensing their work to game creators, or I don't know if it's ever wise to try to manage it yourself. Uh, do you see that happening? Or do you have any advice for authors? I do a lot of licensing. Um, mostly my licensing for Catalyst has been with uh, TV shows and movies kind of thing. Um, because we want the visuals. Uh, but I have seen, I mean, I, there's a few, I can't tell you who, but there's a few um, fiction lines, fiction writers, who I would love to license just their, the world they put in print. It's a, it'll be all to generate visuals, or I can do that. But if, if the world is deep enough or long-lived enough, um, absolutely. There's no reason why you can't license it. Um, and there's also a, a really big push right now among writers to treat their work with more um, professionalism toward what you can do with it. Yes, we publish books and we, we and stories, and we have a lot of fun with that. But we, why can't we take these worlds we're building, these characters we're building, and find other ways to license them into games or other potential uh, avenues? Uh, I think that's coming. Um, that's where, again, it's just, it's one of those things where it's not the first thing people think of. You're right. What do you make? Books. But why couldn't you make a figurine? Why couldn't you make a series of, of, you know, sci-fi postcards based on your worlds and, and sell it as a pack? Why couldn't you take your work into other medias or into other, uh, categories completely? And the answer is there's no reason why. We just haven't been big on doing it, but we should be because we are creating more content in, in a short story than some people create, you know, in, in physical products. You know, the, the, the depth of our work is amazing, and we should be we should be finding better ways to uh, to get it out there. I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, it's it's exciting all the possibilities. Honestly, um, okay. So you mentioned earlier that there are opportunities for authors who are interested in working um, writing for hire. Um, how do they find those jobs? And especially if they are interested in um, Wizards, Wizard of the Coast, Wizards of the Coast, <laughs> and, and all these companies that you're associated with. Um, so rule number one, I say, don't chase something because you think it's an easy gig or it maybe it'd be fun to try it out. If you're going for work for hire, you really want to go write a, a, a work for hire novel, something like that. You should already love the universe you're already looking at. Um, this is not where you go to, oh, how hard could it be to, to, to knock off a fancy novel for, for this company? Not only will you not enjoy the process, the fans will know it. Uh, it's just, just love what you want to do already. I wrote for Star Trek. I'm a big Star Trek fan. I wrote for Conan. I'm a huge Robert Howard fan. So I was already a fan of those works. So to write in them was a privilege. Um, yes, I also made money and I have to practice my craft doing something new, but love what you're already wanting to do. Second thing is look for where you've already got something in. in. You know, if you, if you, if you like Battletech and you happen to know me, drop me an email. I'll let you know if we've got anything open. And almost always we have anthologies and other things where you can write for. Um, if you're a big, if you're, you know, if you're a big, uh, 
you know, sci-fi fan and you've got, and you know, someone who's written for Trek or, you know, you know, an editor or something like that. Sure. Ask you're, you're, a, if you're a D and D fan, drop a letter to wizards, you know, see, see what they're doing. Um, it all, you know, there's so many ways to do it. What do you tell people is what are you already doing? Where, where do you already have an opening? That's something that's also interesting to you because work for hire can be, I mean, there's just no limit to what you can do with it. I mean, where, where that exists. Um, I know people who do work for hire by writing commercials. You ever see all these sci fi, these, these commercials with like science fiction and fantasy elements to them? And, uh, a lot of times those are written by sci fi fantasy writers who are just, you know, moonlighting and, and dropping in some scripts to, uh, for commercials. You never know what that might come out. So for, for this kind of stuff, for, for fan, I say for fantasy sci fi gaming related novels, usually you just drop them an email, see what's going on, catch them at a convention. Conventions are awesome. First of all, they're fun. And then people are there having a good time. And usually you can find someone. If you can't find the exact person you need, you can find someone one degree removed. And it's like, you know, hey, yeah, I know who you want to talk to. Here, here's their email. Okay. So you, you, you've just got it quick in, in the door, you know, right there. So conventions are great. Um, for gaming is Origins and Gen Con are the big ones, but there's all sorts of other ones. Sci-fi, fantasy, anime, they're all over the freaking country. Just, Go to where the people are and start checking into it. Um, I would say stay away from fanfic if you want to be a work for, if you want to do work for hire novel. Fanfic is not where you audition generally for work for hire novels. Not that it's not good or bad. Doesn't matter. Um, you, you remember you are a writer. You're a professional. Your, your content is worth something. Also, their IP is worth something. Fanfic's a really weird gray area where everyone's doing work for no money and spreading around content for no money. And that can be weird when you're trying to then make money off of it later. So I would say, you know, stay, people say fanfic is a great way to practice. Not for this, not if you want to make money in a work for higher industry, you don't, um, you know, conventions are great. Most people I know are very approachable. Emails are fine. You know, go to their website, grab their email. So do you have a friend of a friend, you know, ask them, do a little networking. Yeah, I was actually I was, I was actually just at PAX Unplugged uh, this past weekend. Great show. Uh, all right, so one last question, potentially a quick one. I just saw it in your bio, and I figured I'd end with it. Uh, what's the origin of the phrase, the whole nine yards? <laughs> I love uh, tracking down, uh, yes, of uh, the etymology of phrases and, and, uh, and, symbol, and symbology and stuff like that. It's, there's, there's a lot of debate on this one. So if you really want to track it down, you have to, you have to find published work that refers, reference it in a way that you can tell what it's from. The whole nine yards is a difficult one because there is yet no definitive answer on this one. There are two competing store, there are two competing anecdotal phrases, one of which I believe more than another. But one of one is, uh, is that, is the, the classic one, the original one that I heard originally when I was researching this was, um, in World War, Two, I believe, the most popular fighter, the ammo belt was basically nine yards long. So when you shot your whole nine yards, you were done. You had nothing left to shoot. So, or if you gave someone the whole nine yards, <clears throat> means you emptied, your, you emptied your belt down. And more recently, I've heard a lot of the fans of the, uh, let's say, the Highlander persuasion say that it was obviously a reference to making a traditional Highland kilt, which takes nine yards of fabric. I mean, I, I know I've seen wearing kilts and, and the big, the big drape things. 
I don't think there's nine years of fabric in that thing, but yeah, maybe. Um, they're, they're really adamant that's where it comes from. I can find no published work to, to solidify that particular statement. I lean a little more towards the war story because a lot of our popular phraseology and, and stuff does come out of uh, the military. It comes out of things like uh, the, the world wars, the big wars we went to. Um, those are very popular places for that kind of stuff to leak out from. Um, but that's, that's an unsettled argument at this time. But yes, I, I do love, uh, I do love uh, researching fr- phrases and, and words to figure out where they came from because I saw where shooting fish in a barrel came from. It's driving me crazy. So whoever shot fish in a barrel before, I, I really want to know. It's almost like you're an author. You know, yeah. No, it's just, it's just, you know, again, I, I work with words. So what made that particular set of words become enter our language in a way? And, and again, the origin is almost always lost to time. Figuring out where it came from is, is hard, um, but fun. So yeah, it's just a little hobby of mine. Awesome. Well, we've gone um, a little over an hour, I think. Um, I, my brain is completely full, and now I'm like, I've got to go back to working on that Kickstarter you and I have been chatting about. I'm just very, very excited. And I'm sure our listeners probably have a ton of ideas, too. Um, but thank you for joining us. Um, where can our um, listeners, followers, et cetera, find you? Uh, you can find us at uh, CatalystGameLabs.com. Uh, we have a Twitter feed. Uh, Catalyst Game Lab, I think, is our Twitter feed. We we were one letter too long. Um, and uh, I am not on social media a lot. Uh, I do sh- I do I do conventions, um, Origins, Gen Con, PAX West. Uh, I'm sure there's ones I'm, there's several on Gamma, li- the Licensing Expo in Vegas, uh, Toy Fair. I do a lot of shows. Um, I, I tend I tend to avoid social media except for things like this when I do scripted items. But uh, I can be found and reached out to uh, on, on on the Catalyst website uh, through our Twitter feed. Uh, I'm on Facebook uh, and I've got my own website, LaurenLColeman.com, which has a you know I post occasional essays and you know my little hobbies there, and then uh, I'll answer emails that come off of that as well. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up now. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed our show today. Uh, We'd like to thank Joshua Pearson for producing it and our listeners, you guys all, for your questions and support and for sharing our podcast. Um, Please visit sixfigureauthors.com. That's the number six for episode notes to leave a comment or to ask a question for a future show and also request topics that you would like to hear us discuss. Anyway, if you'd like to join us on Facebook, we have a new group there. Search for Six Figure Authors and check out the show notes for the link. Um, Also, please answer the questions. And I think I've said this at least once before. (laughs) But if we don't accept your request to join, it's because the questions did not get filled out. So if you do listen, uh, send one of us a message and we will add you in. Or if you request again, we'll go ahead and add you. Um, That's it pretty much for today. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye, everyone. So long, everybody.